The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 150 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.csub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and to get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Well, last week, we had Vice President of Information Security for Daily Pay, Mr. Jeffrey Hoodsman, on the show. He discussed the challenges of creating a strategy for tech startups with very little resources. Jeffrey talked about the biggest threats fintech companies are facing, how they're combating them, how he works to establish a security culture in his organization, and the importance of certifications like ISO 27001R for smaller companies. Hoodsman also commented on how important timely threat intelligence is how he goes about implementing red teaming operations in a fintech environment, and how he sees the role of emerging technologies play in the cybersecurity posture of a small startup. All this and much, much more on episode number 149 of Task Force 7 Radio. Don't miss everything Jeffrey had to say on last week's episode. And if you missed it, don't sweat it. You can find us everywhere on Playback, folks. That's cybersecurity in a fintech world on last week's episode. That's episode number 149 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, I'm excited about our next guest. We've got the general partner and CTO of Landmark Ventures, Mr. Anthony Giuliano, coming on the show tonight. Anthony's a seasoned veteran of IT operations and technology innovation. He's got a background in technology strategy, enterprise systems, network administration, infrastructure, and architecture operations. That's all cool, but the reality is he's, as general partner, you know, Anthony advises companies who are tackling some of the cybersecurity's most challenging problems. He's worked with more than 300 CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and buys more than 50-plus early-stage technology companies on strategic growth and execution. Anthony takes a big-picture approach to understanding the role of innovation in a rapidly changing landscape, leverages a deep understanding of the dynamics between technical underpinnings, market demand, and enterprise operations, and he focuses heavily on being a trusted partner with the startups he advises and the customers they work with. It's my pleasure to introduce general partner and CTO of Landmark Ventures, Mr. Anthony Giuliano. Anthony, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Look, I'm excited to have you on. You know, you, you know, guests like you are so much fun because you have such a great perspective. You know, you're, you see the world from a different lens. And um, even though you're a technical guy, uh, you've been in the game a while, you know, you're sitting in a seat now where, you, you know, you see it from a very interesting lens. 
um, you know, big companies, small companies, small companies that you've invested in that turn into big companies. Um, but, you know, so I love having guys like you on. You know, oh, you know, thanks. Cool, man. So, so it's been interesting because, you know, you look at, from the sales side of things, right, I'm, where I sit, you know, as a CISO, right, we're getting hit all over, right, on the sales uh. side of things. Um, and it seems like there's so many companies out there, so much investment happening, and some folks feel like there's a you know potentially a cyber bubble as it relates to investing. You know what, what's your what are you seeing? What's your prediction there? Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, there's there's no way to ever really predict a bubble, obviously. So anything you you kind of assume is is both true and false at the same time. I'll call it you know Schrodinger's bubble. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, there is a significant amount of investment going on in cyber because there's a significant amount of opportunity and also because it's it's a long-lasting problem. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as a secure computer. Uh, there's no such thing as a uh, secure enterprise. And the reality is, even in times of crisis, when you look at, you know, the past six months, uh, everything has been increased in terms of the number of attacks, the number of people who are going after uh, major enterprises who had a whole lot of change and a whole lot of, you know, uh, adaptation to kind of the new normal. Uh, and, and it's those moments in time where all of a sudden, you know, the, just the level of uh, kind of risk associated with doing everyday business becomes so, uh, you know, uh, magnified. Uh, so the reality is that, yes, there's a, 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 you know, a lot more investment going on, but I think it's for good reason. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, um, the truth is that, you know, uh, that, that kind of investment is going to yield results from a, an innovation perspective and from an adoption perspective. Um, Every bubble was really about investing in the right things at the right time. Uh, I think that the investments that are going to stand out and that are going to be sturdy are going to be the ones that will, will you know, last the, the test of time. Um, is there money out there that's, you know, kind of being, I'll call it, uh, frivolously thrown around? For sure. Uh, but I, I wouldn't call it a bubble. No, it's interesting. You know, and it, it's interesting, too, with the, with the pandemic, um, are you seeing folks, you know, investors focus on dumping cash into maybe more money into fewer companies or are you seeing, you know, a little more risk? Uh, you know, I think it depends on the investor and, and look, I know it's a terrible answer, but I think the reality is if you kind of, you know, unpack it, um, look at kind of the major investors that, you know, uh, basically have been taking and, and consolidating and trying to double down, um, it's a very different investment methodology than I'll call the lottery ticket style investment. You know, that I think uh, uh, more often than not uh, is kind of the, the you know, stalwart of VC. Um, <clears throat> the private equity guys have, you know, just raised a, a ton of money, right? And they have to put money out and they're mandated to do it, um, which I think, you know, separates out a little bit of kind of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, makes us a little bit more, uh, you know, strategically oriented to, to not have to deploy capital in that way. Um, but when I look at, you know, how the investment maybe kind of market trends have shifted. Um, the reality is, I think that, you know, you're, you're seeing more investment in uh, companies that are going to be, um, I'll call it, you know, easier to, to bootstrap, right? 
Uh, and, and that's just been the trend for the past, you know, 10, 15 years, right? It used to be you needed to go, you know, raise a million dollars to even start a company. And, and now you can start a company on a credit card, right? So uh, I think that anybody who is deploying capital, the typical type investment that you're going to make is, is much more aligned with uh, where you see kind of the return horizon. Uh, and given the pandemic, I think you're going to see a lot more of the investments that are being made are smaller investments, um, definitely, you know, staying away from, uh, I'll call it the stalwart markets as well, right? So, uh, you know, not putting money into kind of crowded spaces, not trying to reinvent the wheel, not, you know, going after the EDR space, not going after, you know, kind of uh, major players, right? Not taking on IBM, uh, you know, uh, headlong, right? I think it's, it's much more about how do I find those niche places where I think I see an exit maybe within a, a five or, you know, kind of uh, even less year horizon, uh, those are the types of things that I think are going to be more valuable in the short term. Uh, and, and that's really where I see the money headed. So, you know, I talked to some investment companies, they've, you know, they talk a little bit about this kind of the race to leadership and zero trust. Is that something that like, do you see zero trust as kind of like that macro trend where there's be the next, you know, bunch of, you know, investments, you know, similar to kind of the way EDR was a few years ago. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, Zero Trust has been around for the past, like, really, I'll call it, you know, five years, right? I mean, that's kind of when it was coined. Um, and everybody talked about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, much like, uh, I'll call it, uh, you know, big data and teenage sex, right? Everybody talks about it, nobody does it. Um, I, I feel like the reality is we have all the tools in the marketplace already to be able to do Zero Trust. Um, I think what people are, are really kind of missing is, um, taking that that leap to be able to actually like you know uh, do it right. So um, when I look at the the you know set of solutions that are out there, there are some really good ones. You know we have a particularly strong set. Um, I think Axis is you know really kind of top notch in that space. But um, the the reality is it's a series of different kind of mentalities that need to be kind of shifted from a culture perspective, right? Uh, the perimeter is gone. We all know it. It really has to be now about identity uh, and it has to be about data. Uh, when I look at the innovation on the data side, everybody's still kind of, you know, trudging through whatever whatever the hell blockchain is really going to do for you, which um, at the end of the day, I don't think it's really going to do much, right? But, you know, if there are other ways to do kind of, you know, uh, I'll call it polymorphic encryption or um, even look at, you know, kind of the trends in, in being able to work with data while encrypted without having to, you know, kind of slow down performance. That's where innovation will come, but nobody's innovating on the identity side. Uh, you've still got like major players that, you know, basically are, are doing very minimal amounts of work to keep their position. You've got, you know, Okta and you've got SailPoint and CyberArk and like, that's it, man. Like, so the, the zero trust concept as a macro level, yes, we're all going to go there. But um, it's like saying, is cloud the new trend? Yeah, sure. Cloud's the new trend. Some people were willing to get in early. Some people got on the board and, and actually did something about it. And, you know, same thing with zero trust. Some people are, are going wholesale. Some people are, are, you know, dipping their toe in the water. Everybody's been forced to at least in some assumption level um, realize that their users are not coming from trusted machines and not coming from a trusted world. And especially in a work from home pandemic level, you know, kind of event. Uh, now everybody has, you know, really truly broken the perimeter. Uh, so the, the ultimate kind of challenge is what does zero trust even mean? 
what do you really want to do with it? And when I look at it, you know, the idea should be that every machine should be considered untrusted. Uh, and have many companies done that? No. Uh, will they? Yes. Is that a place to spend money from an investment perspective? I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount it, but it's not like you can just label it zero trust or call it machine learning or call it cloud and all of a sudden it makes it a better investment. All of that's marketing, man. You got to stay away from that. Yeah, it's good, good points. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think you're spot on with, you know, companies making the leap, um, you know, because culturally it's a shift, right? They've got to say, you know, we don't, you go from, we want to trust our employees to now we don't. We want to trust that they're doing the right things to now we don't, right? And that's well, side the, of the security. The group. other thing too, right? I mean, I mean, think about it, right? The, the, I talked with somebody, I forget who it was, but a CISO told me once that, you know, even just calling it zero trust uh, means that you are behind the curve on internal marketing. Because now you've told your employees, we don't trust you. So we got to figure out a different term. We got to figure out how to sell it inside. But, you know, calling it a zero trust initiative, even in and of itself, is, is kind of like a, a, a slap in the face to, you know, saying, well, I don't trust my employees, right? So I, I think there's, there's a lot to it. It's the right theory and methodology, but it, it really is not the right marketing. Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. I mean, that, you know, companies, you know, want to make sure you go to the HR department, tell them we don't trust anybody. They're going to look at <laughs> your fault, right? Like, you know, these are the people we put our livelihoods in their hands of, right? So it's uh, interesting. So, so, you know, what would make a company then, you know, kind of stand out, um, you know, for you right now? Yeah, you know, um, there's a difference between right now and everlasting. I'll, let me, let me kind of maybe break it down a little bit. So for, for me, uh, you know, the companies that I think are going to be valuable are the ones that hit the right moment in time and the right market for the, the problem that's out there. Uh, I mean, obviously, look, my, my day is spent literally back to back, you know, talking to, to CIOs and CTOs and CISOs. And so um, we take, obviously, a very market forward position. Uh, we spend all of our time really kind of being forward facing and thinking about what's actually out there. Um, and, and so the result is that, you know, for anything that I see, it's really about the market moment, right? You know, uh, and, and I think we're in a, a, a good position to do that. And, and we're very you know, fortunate to have those relationships with, with that many executives and that many um, technology experts um, that we can actually assess the market in that way. So the, the, you know, what's, what's going to be good right now, you know, I think if you look at the existing market, you know, that's why, um, and not to go back to it, but you know, in the zero trust enablement space, uh, that's why we like access so much is because of the ease of use associated with it compared to, you know, traditional solutions in the space. Um, anything that's going to simplify or make life easier. You know, I remember uh, a while ago, and I still, I still think this is a great idea. Somebody created basically a container agent to end all agents on the endpoint so that you can just put all of your agent technologies in that. And it will handle all the conflicts of the resources and all that stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's a great idea. Can you show it to me? And then they, they never actually got back to me on doing a demo, right? Because I don't think it ever existed. But that would be a fantastic thing, right? That would be really cool because it's all about simplification. The problem is that security is always at odds with uh, some level of uh, ability. Um, and, and that's just the nature of it. But the, the reality is, you know, you put brakes on a car because you basically, you know, need to stop in order to go faster. Uh, if you didn't have brakes on a car, you'd just have to roll at, you know, five miles an hour everywhere and, and hope for the best. 
Um, but you're allowed to go 60 miles an hour because you have brakes, because you can slow down, right? And so security should be the same way. Security is really about enabling the entire organization to be more effective and productive, but it does come at odds, right? Typing in a password, putting in two-factor authentication, uh, you know, all those types of things really are kind of ultimately um, uh, a problem for the user experience. And so any technology that's going to help simplify the management help simplify the experience of the end user while still maintaining that security. I think those are everlasting concepts. And I think also um, those are, are good things now, especially uh, as we start to have more and more users that are, you know, kind of uh, uh, out in the, the wild uh, in this, you know, net new zero trust world. Um, the major thing I look for that I think is most important, uh, it really comes down to how do you trust the CEO? And for me, I look for a triple threat. Uh, it's something I've, I've mentioned a few different times, and, and I, I have a little bit of an acting background. So in the world of, you know, I'll call it the uh, acting, it's, you know, triple threat was you could sing, dance, and act, right? Uh, in the world of, of, of really entrepreneurship, a triple threat is a CEO who, first of all, can lead the organization. You know, somebody who everybody is behind them, uh, trusts them, you know, they are a leader, he or she basically is in the, the driver's seat effectively and can be, uh, you know, really uh, uh, trusted to, to actually kind of, you know, uh, take on and, and lead everyone. It's not somebody who delegates everything. It's not somebody who is, um, you know, kind of uh, mandating and cracking the whip. Um, it, it's really more about leading and pulling everyone with them from the front. Um, the second thing is they have to be able to sell. Uh, if you can't sit in front of someone and actually sell and be able to, to you know, ask for the deal, close the deal, like, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, the organization, and especially if you're in an enterprise technology company, right, you're selling to the Fortune 500, your job as CEO is to be the best salesperson in that company, period. Uh, so if you're not uh, a founder uh, who can sell, you need to step aside. Your job is product. Your job is CTO. You're not the CEO of the company, even if you want to be. You know, the reality is you need to step to the side. Uh, and then I think the, the third thing I always look for is you do need the CEO to be also, I'll call it the CTO, right? And so from a product, from a technical perspective, you need to be able to, to talk at the, the extraordinary depths of an engineer. Uh, now, I don't know that you need to necessarily be able to write code, right? You don't need to be an engineer, but you need to be able to talk to that level. And you need to be at that extraordinary component of, uh, uh, you know, really crossing both technology and business and, and be able to really explain, here's why we're doing this and where it's going uh, and be able to answer the technical questions. So I see a lot of these CEOs who have maybe one or two of those qualities um, I've seen, you know, maybe three or four that have truly uh, that triple threat quality, and all of them have been, you know, unicorn level exits, right? So that that to me is is always what I look for, uh, and they're few and far between. Wow, that's great, great insight, man. I, I can't. In the next segment, I definitely want to dig into uh, the relationship side, of, like you know, that we, you're bringing up because I think that's going to be. Uh, really critical with the pandemic. So we'll, we'll dive into that. But before we go, folks, we got to transition to a commercial break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram at searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or topic, suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7radio.com. 
We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and we're right back with general partner and CTO of Landmark Ventures, Mr. Anthony Giuliano. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or google signet s-i-n-e-t in today's interconnected world digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work live and communicate in business staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. 
Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with general partner and CTO of Landmark Ventures, Mr. Anthony Giuliano. So, Anthony, you know, last segment, we talked a little bit about, you know, landmarks and your uh, relationship building with the CIOs, the CTOs, and the CISOs to, you know, kind of have that forward-leaning look in the market. Obviously, with COVID-19 and the pandemic, um, you know, that's probably becoming more and more important for you and your business today, being that, you know, me and my colleagues aren't out traveling to conferences and doing dinner meetings and all that kind of stuff. Um, tell me, how has that helped, you know, your strategy have building the relationships in our space um, kind of prior to the pandemic helped you navigate, you know, the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, my travel and expense budget has probably uh, saved the, uh, uh, the firm a ton of money considering I'm not doing dinners or traveling either. Uh, I can only imagine, you know, how much... Uh, how much money's been saved there? Um, so honestly, it's interesting, right? Because um, as soon as this happens, uh, well, I, I guess maybe kind of a first first precursor, right? Um, we, we're a little bit diversified. We don't only do investment, and so the result is, you know, we do advisory banking and capital, and, and the advisory piece being really kind of that, uh, you know, capability to uh, work with a startup and, and help them drive success. Uh, you know, even if we're not an investor um, and the banking side, obviously kind of fundraising and M&A and then capital, more traditional investment with a, a bit of a, a kind of twist. Um, but the, the reality is when, when all this happened, we had a moment just like everybody else to say, uh-oh, what's going on? Um, and I had a prediction, uh, which my prediction was that uh, this is the time to double down. This is the time where you know, you don't put the brakes on, you don't, you don't pull the plug, you don't, you know, kind of uh, go into hibernation, you double down. Uh, and security, especially because I knew, uh, and I was, you know, right. Um, this type of kind of moment in time uh, is exactly what attackers look to take advantage of. Uh, and we're starting to see that, um, you know, kind of be a problem. So long story short, uh, our business has never been more valuable. Uh, you know, I literally have somewhere around, a couple thousand CIO, CISO, CTO relationships that I've built over the course of the past 15 years. Uh, and, and the reality is that at this moment, uh, you know, that was the, the only thing that mattered to me was just reaching out and saying, you know, guys, what can I do to help? So we took the entire portfolio, we repurposed it effectively to be uh, basically an engine for, for just helping get through, right? You know, uh, area one, basically we turned them to, to say, look, let's do some uh, free coverage for anti-phishing, right? Let's just turn this into a, a really extended POC. If people need it, let's give it, you know? Uh, we have companies that are focused on, on doing, uh, you know, really excellent cybersecurity from a, a, an awareness and training perspective, right? Right. You know, Ninjio, they've, they've been doing some incredible deals just to say, hey, look, we'll give you coverage and, and you know, we'll figure out everything later. And, and so basically, I think for me that that moment in time, if we didn't have those relationships, uh, it would have been um, problematic. It would have been, you know, kind of this sea of, of inundation of, of cold emails that start with in these trying times and, you know, uh, whatever the, the latest car commercial line is. Uh, I forget, I was watching like an Audi commercial or something and it was like, in, in times of crisis and uncertainty, you should buy an Audi. And it's like, really? Like, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, you know, so uh, for all of these emails that open with all of these unprecedented times, um, we stayed away from that and said, hey, 
I'm just checking in. I want to help. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, the response to that was great. Um, we had some companies that I, I knew were, were not going to make it, right? We had some companies that I knew, you know, what they needed to do was, was shutter the doors, shutter the windows. They needed to just go into hibernate, uh, and that's fine. Uh, and, and they did, right? But for everyone else, and especially in security, I said, this is not the time to, to you know, pull back. This is the time to, to push power forward, you know? And, and really, if you can do this right, you'll come out the other side of it, bigger, better, stronger. Uh, and, and for the companies we did that with, it's completely and utterly true. You know, we got deals done um, for our companies during the pandemic uh, that I feel like many other companies were, you know, very much behind the eight ball saying, oh God, what's going to happen? But you're not going to find that, you know, from a, uh, and, and I'm not picking on Cisco or Palo Alto or, you know, these big vendors, but like, you're not going to find that from a big vendor, uh, you know, kind of uh, 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 landscape, right? Sure, their, their procurement teams or, or you know, their um, uh, finance teams might be amenable to, you know, some level of, hey, we'll space the payments out or whatever the case may be. But like, how many of those companies truly are like, you know, saying, hey, I, I just want to be scrappy and, and do whatever it takes to help? Um, you know, they'll, they'll be very, very quick to go back to their old mantra of, I'll call it the Oracle sales model, right? Um, which is, you know, uh, screw you, pay me, right? Um, so... I think um, from my side, the relationships, incredibly important. Overnight, we became extremely um, valuable and, and effectively, you know, I got a lot of calls from people just saying, hey, I need to navigate. Can you help? And I said, absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely find it valuable. I'm on both sides of that with regards to like, you know, getting the cold call, the cold email, you know, without having any pre-existing relationship. And, you know, just on the buyer side, it's definitely challenging for me to want to take a look at companies that I don't, you know, have some familiarization with or, you know, have a relationship with previously just because it's, there's overload and you don't really know, like, are they going to be around for the long haul? Yeah. You know, are they solving the and, and, and quite frankly, it's time. And, and obviously, you know, like I value our relationship and being able to have like an industry day to kind of get, you know, everything kind of, you know, tailored to me uh, based on what I need. Right. And, yep. and that's you know, really valuable. But how are you helping like those, you know, what, what advice would you give like the smaller companies out there that maybe, you know, don't have like a brand of an area when like, we've had Blake on the show. He's great. You know, they're doing some great work over there. And ngo has been around for a while. Really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. But like for the companies that don't have like a, a, a strong brand yet, like what would you advise them to do? <laughs> Hire landmark. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean like, uh, you know, I guess it's a couple of things. Um, First of all, the marketing game in cybersecurity is a race to the bottom. Everybody says the same things and and nobody highlights what actually matters. Uh, And to me, that's, that's just such a lost opportunity. Uh, You know, and and look, not to say that, you know, uh, there's this, this conference thing. And I know not many people remember what a conference is, but you know, RSA, um, you walk around and every booth says the same thing. Um, you know, it, it, it was just absolutely crazy to me. And even better, the ones that said stop cyber attacks before they start. It's like, uh, how do you do that? <laughs> like, that's, that's actually not what you're doing, man. Like, you know, so to, to me, the, the problem is not that there's thousands of vendors. I think that's certainly, you know, indicative that there's thousands of opportunities. It, it's that basically the message that they use is just so piss poor because it's like, 
you, you just have to literally kind of race to the, the same message that everybody else used because, oh, well, you know, IBM put it on their, you know, slide and then that person got fired and then they got hired by a small company. And all of a sudden they say, we're going to use the same message IBM used, right? So like, you, you got to differentiate, you got to focus on the technology. Um, you also got to be aware of what you can do as well as what you cannot do. Meaning, you know, all of our companies, and, and we talk about this even, I'll call it during, you know, sales methodology and execution. The reality is if you cannot accomplish what it is that, you know, the, the customer wants, this is not the time to oversell it, right? This is not the time to say like, oh yeah, we'll go do that. Or to say like, hey, um, you know, we can cover that, you know, cause it'll come out later. And it's all about the, the technology and the merit of the technology. Um, I think the other thing too, from a, a small company perspective, is to align uh, your marketing dollars and your um, your actual kind of investment in sales appropriately. Um, when you hire a salesperson, hiring that X Oracle, that X SAP, that X you know Cisco or whatever person uh, to come work at a small company, that's that's probably not the right profile. Uh, you know, sales talent is very, very hard to find. Um, and good salespeople are, are basically not even salespeople, realistically. You know, I, I look, I mean, I think everybody's a salesperson fundamentally at that, that heart. You know, if you're going out on a date with somebody, you know, you're, you're effectively selling your value proposition. If you're, you know, uh, going on an interview, you're selling your work history. Uh, you're meeting somebody for the first time anywhere or any, any kind of context. You're, you're in a sales position always. That's inevitably how I look at the world. Um, now, you know, is that jaded? I don't, I don't think so, but I think it's just realistic, right? Because um, the whole point of human communication comes down to being able to be persuasive, being able to actually kind of understand and be empathetic. And, and so to me, it's all sales. So how do you find a good salesperson who can carry that message? You know, I'll go back to the fact they have to be technical. They have to be, uh, you know, polished. They have to have process too, right? And so um, when I look at how do you differentiate against the sea, uh, that's the, you know, oceans of, of various different companies companies out there when you're a small brand, uh, you got to find those ways to, to basically have a force multiplier because you don't have the same budget as an IBM or as a, you know, Cisco or whoever. Um, so how do you make that dollar go further? Uh, and, you know, truly at the end of the day, I think that's part of what our advisory group does. But I think even beyond that, it's focus on the things that you're exceptionally good at and find ways to add value rather than, you know, finding ways to, to just kind of uh, uh, carpet bomb the entire universe uh, with email. Uh, you know, because that's, that's not helping anybody. Um, even more than that, you know, build a relationship and try and be helpful. Um, but I think that's also, you know, and, and again, not to turn into a commercial, but that, that's part of why my value proposition and, and what we do is, is more valuable. At the end of the day, if I can talk to you about, you know, 15 or 20 different things from the portfolio that are going to help solve problems, the chances are maybe like three of them are a fit, right? Like, at most, like if we're lucky. Um, but if you're the, the, you know, small sales guy, you know, at a, a tiny company solving one piece of a problem, your job is to get to a no because every no gets you closer to a yes. And so that's why there's these like thousands of emails that hit my inbox every day. And, and I also, you know, same as you, Andy, I, I live on both sides of the, the coin, right? I, I have to be 
Uh, in the, the driver's seat, I manage all of our internal technology. I am responsible for our security strategy. So I'm hit every day with the same overload of emails. And I see some of these emails and like I read them and I'm like, what are you selling and why are you emailing me? Uh, but then there are the other ones that are really well written that like, you know, have actual value. And I'm like, okay, cool, good, sorry, not a fit, but here's why. And, you know, uh, I'll talk to you if it ever becomes a fit. Um, and, and I think that there's, you know, kind of an art and a magic to it. Um, but it's really about just avoiding that race to the bottom that, that, you know, cybersecurity marketing has become. Yeah, that's a good point. So like, you know, I, I feel like with you know, third party risk management, a lot of companies are consolidating their vendors, um, not trying to deal with this. They're trying to simplify to your point, right? Around we talked about last segment around simplification. I mean, saying, I think that same thing is happening from a vendor space, um, you know, especially within just at the enterprise level, not even necessarily just in security. So are you seeing it easier for, for companies that come in through like a, a, a large consulting firm, through an engagement, uh, through a VAR? Like what's the best entry point that you're seeing for your companies to get introduced, through, you know, into the, not introduced to the companies, but to, you know, kind of actually get through procurement, Yeah. Um, you know, into, into the... No, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. So reality is, I, I don't think those companies are, they're not good at, and I'm talking about the VARs and the, the you know, consulting firms. They're not really good at being the introduction. Um, that's not how you get access, right? But it is a hell of a lot easier to get through a procurement if you've got a preferred partner that we can put, you know, my company on that paper. Um, now, I, I wish it wasn't the case, to be honest, um, because depending upon, you know, which VAR, and I'll leave names to, you know, be uh, uh, protected by, uh, you know, to protect the innocent, if you will. Um, but the, the reality is some of them are, are charging exorbitant amounts of money just because they have paper there, right? And so I've often thought about it, and hey, I'd, I'd be actually interested in your feedback on it, right? You know, what if what if we became the procurement vehicle and we just had an MSA in place, right? And now you could ride on us. Um, that comes with all kinds of liability. It comes with all kinds of challenges. And so like, we've just always shied away from it. But like, what, what about for you, man? Like, it, it seems easier, right? To get through procurement if you've already got a, a partner in place. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it certainly is. I think the, the interesting thing for me always is, I know I can get everything cheaper if I go direct with the company, but then on the back end of that, um, you know, not having that relationship in place, sometimes the speed at which I need technology or services, you know, could get slowed down if that stuff's already not in place. So to your point, like building the relationship up front, even if we start out the relationship and say, hey, look, these three or four vendors are, you know, ones that I probably would consider using over the next, you know, one, two, three quarters, like, let's get that MSA in place, NDAs in place, get you know, agreements in place now so that if we, when we get to a point where yeah. budgets are aligned, needs aligned, we can pull the trigger, that's a much better position. But a lot of times what happens is you, you know, you start to look for technology and, or you get, a, you get access to the technology when you need it, as opposed to being able to look down the road. And thankfully, like, you know, you and I talk and so we can, we, we can project out a bit, right. And you know, we have relationships like that, but for others that don't, you know, you're scrambling to kind of beat that procurement clock because now you've got to spend the money prior to, you know, a certain time frame or whatever it may be. And so, yeah, having that up front would be, it makes the life a lot easier because ultimately we're spending way more money, um, you know, to go through a bar uh, when you can, you can, you know, deal directly. Right? Yeah. And, and they take their pound of flesh out of the vendor side too, man. Like it's, it's not cheap for them. Like it, you know, I, I just, 
And, and I don't know, you know, I, I first of all, obviously, uh, I hope there's no procurement people listening, but I was going to say, I think, you know, generally speaking, I feel like procurement people are lazy. Um, it's not actually true. I, I feel like that's that's a, a unfair statement. They've got a, a yeoman's task to take on, right? I mean, there are literally hundreds of vendors that, you know, you have to procure and, and work with. And I think for them, they, they treat, you know, the, the you know, uh, I'll call it the office supplies vendor, the same as the cybersecurity vendor, right? And so, you know, for them, it's just another contract and, oh, we need to have, you know, millions of dollars of, of non-reciprocal liability and like you need to cover. And if you're a small company, you look at that and go, dude, I, I can't sign this. Like, so there, there's big problems um, I wish there were more technology that streamlined that process effectively. Um, but at the same time, it's just tough. Um, and, and, you know, I also think some procurement people are lazy. So I'll, I'll go back to that. <laughs> Thankfully, mine are really good. You know, <laughs> they're, uh, they, you know, it's nice. I think, you know, with, with different size companies have different problems, right? Like if you're at a large sure. enterprise, Fortune, you know, 100, um, I think the mindset and procurement is a lot different than, you know, if you're in totally. a um, totally. you know, Fortune kind of 500 um, model, just because, you, you know, you have the benefit of dealing with, you know, more mature companies, but at the same yeah. time, you are at a size where you're valuable to a small startup, right? And you can oh, totally. kind of play both sides. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, I like to look for, because uh, I, I like to innovate, you know, where we can and um, you know, is partners, you know, vendors that are almost, I treat as partners, right? And, and one, yeah. those that are willing to not so far down the, the product development life cycle that they can't pivot a little bit to get some, maybe some more advanced features and requirements into totally. their, what's your take on, you know, advising companies to be a part of things like that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, honestly, at the end of the day, if, if you're not looking at every customer as being like, a net new company to work for, um, you're missing an opportunity. Uh, and, and if you have, I mean, you know, look, so, some products are, are kind of set and forget, right? But like every company we have is explicitly uh, uh, focused on um, becoming a part of their customer's journey. And, and I think it should be the reverse too, right? So if you, you know, uh, buy from uh, a small company or, or, you know, one of our portfolio companies, you should have the same level of impact as if you were an employee at that company, an executive leadership member, right? Now, obviously, uh, things can get dicey. Uh, you know, the, the uh, random kind of advisory board customer that all of a sudden comes back and, you know, decides to, to give their input that the company should go in a completely and utterly different direction. And now you're getting pulled from all sides. Like you have to recognize that, hey, well, you know, that's not where we're going to be aligned and, you know, kind of explain that. But I think ultimately, especially if it's reasonable and, and you know, nine times out of 10, it is. Yeah. Build it into the roadmap, build it down the line. You know, it's not only about servicing that customer to, to get the deal. It's about keeping that customer, you know, every single moment that you have an opportunity to add value for your customers is the moment that you can continue to sell, that you can continue to, to you know, keep that deal in place. Uh, and that's the mentality that, you know, especially small vendors have to go with. Um, and, and I think it comes back to even the point I made last segment about, you know, what, what we look for in a CEO. Um, you have to have a CEO who, who understands that, you know, who, who can actually sell, right? Um, I'll 
and I know I've tossed them out, but I'll go back to area one, right? You know, Oren and team, I think, uh, are, are incredible. Um, you know, same thing as I, I look at Zach at Ningio, same thing as I look at, you know, all of these different companies that, um, that, that we've really highlighted and, and found uh, to be exceptional. They are all committed to their customer first. Uh, and, and the result is that they're successful. Uh, and those are things that, you know, I, I think it's just a good mantra. Yeah, I love it. All right, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from general partner and CTO of Landmark Ventures, Mr. Anthony Giuliano. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with general partner and CTO of Landmark Ventures, Mr. Anthony Giuliano. 
So, Anthony, look, you, you cannot turn on the news, right? Read the paper, get your Twitter feed, whatever it is, however you're consuming information without hearing about another cyber attack, another data breach, another vulnerability being disclosed, right? Are companies getting numb to the cybersecurity news cycle and how is that impacting um, uh, decision-making? Oh, man. I, I mean, I'm numb to it. Jeez. Uh, I feel like, you know, uh, it's, it's, there's so much conversation that goes on. And, and I, I remember, and look, you know, having done this now for however many years, I think 15 years, you know, the conversations early on were, were always poking and prodding, you know, well, how do I measure the impact of, a, you know, a, a breach? Uh, and, and you have all these, you know, really wild estimates that are, are around the cost of data, the cost of, you know, a stolen laptop is, you know, $100 million. And, you know, all this stuff that's like, well, what the impact is going to be in the news if you're on the front page. And, and think about it, right? I mean, I'll, I'll just go to the average consumer. Realistically, you know, and, and for all the listeners out there, you know, ha have you had your credit card number changed because of a notification of a breach? The answer is yes, all of you have. Did you stop using that credit card company? No, probably not. You know, maybe a couple of you, maybe you switched, but probably not. One out of every maybe 100,000 people actually say, yeah, I was impacted, right? I've had credit card fraud. The company takes care of it. I, you know, absent like someone literally stealing all of my money and the bank not protecting it and giving it back, uh, what would be that kind of threshold? And so it, it begs the question, why do we even invest in cybersecurity from a, a, a company perspective? Uh, I think it's the right thing to do. I think there's a, a due diligence, but how do you measure the ROI of that protection? You know, you can you can spend $10 million to protect $10 million, but like you'd have no profit. So how do you measure that ROI and how do you actually build an effective program? And that begs the question, which I know you guys get into it a lot here, but you know, the, the cyber insurance side too, right? Like how much is the right amount of cyber insurance? What am I getting for my money? You know, I, I, uh, I was actually, uh, uh, went on a, a river float last weekend uh, and uh, the long story short, my phone was in the dry bag and the dry bag was not as dry bag as I thought. So Kaput goes phone. Uh, so the reality is now I don't have a, a, a brand new phone. Like I've had this phone for the past three years, um, but I, I've been paying $5 a month insurance on it. Uh, they want to give me a phone that's like five years old. And, and I'm like, guys, you want me to pay $99 for a phone to replace it, but I've been paying insurance $5 a month for the past three years. That's five times 36. Uh, and on top of that, I can buy that same exact phone for 50 bucks on the open market. Uh, like, what am I paying for? So, I, I, you know, the, the, it's, it's fascinating to me what we're willing to pay for from an insurance perspective. And I feel like cyber insurance is like the wild, wild west around this. Like, if, if I get my company's name in the newspaper, does it really matter? Like, you know, the answer is yes. But what is the actual impact, right? Uh, and it's, it's hard then to turn that, you know, kind of measurement of impact into a risk equation because risk is really about probability times impact. And in cybersecurity, we know the probability is, is 100%. You know, a breach is going to happen, right? Uh, and the impact is literally unknowable. So, like, why are we still using those types of risk metrics? Why are we thinking about the world in terms of insurance? Like, 
I don't know, man. It, it, the, the whole thing, some days I have these, you know, very, I'll call it existential crisis moments. Of like, what, what's <laughs> well, it's funny. We, we've had uh, John Frazzini and Bob Bessio, both from SSIC, who were the, you know, the folks that built out the X analytics stuff, and, uh, which is used in the, to underwrite cyber insurance for probably like, I don't know, 80% or so of the cyber insurance market. And, you know, the, the reason why it's been fun to talk to those guys is because they've, they've been able to quantify the cyber risk in financial terms, and it's adopted by the cyber insurance industry. Sure. So now there's this conversation where you can have at an executive level where you'd say, look, we can talk in terms of dollars and cents as to if I make this investment, here's the likelihood of a breach, and here's what we think we can do. You still have to then operationalize all of it, right, which is a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah. But I think it at least starts to bridge the gap between – you know, what's what you hear in the news, how do you compare to that? Totally, totally. And then how much are you spending? And, and look, I mean, so, some of this is all about having the conversation in the first place, right? At least we're having it. Like, that's good. But, you know, it, and, and it, I think all of these, these tools, we're, we're trying to, you know, mark an imperfect equation using perfect math. And, and it's, it's really tough, right? And, and certainly, you know, X Analytics is, is doing a lot better than, than, you know, other ways of doing it. And like, at least we have something, but like, I always take this step back to be like, is this just mumbo jumbo? Like, are, are we, is this the equivalent of like literally, you know, uh, phrenology measuring the size of the skull to determine what person's personalities are? Like, it, it's so crazy sometimes what's going on, but it's important to do it, right? And, and but I do, I do have those existential crisis moments. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see kind of where we shape out there because I think that's, you know, it, it will impact investment you know, not just the investment community, right, but internal cybersecurity programs budgets. Oh, yeah. Well, um, and, and that's it, right? Because the board says here, well, actually, even better. When you have a breach, the board says, here's a blank check. Go fix it. And you go away. And if you take and you spend a lot of money on that blank check, the next quarterly board meeting, okay, what did we pay for uh, and if you don't have a good way to tell that story, uh, the next quarterly meeting is, okay, who's going to replace you? <laughs> you know, so like there, there's these, these moments of, of you have to be fiscally responsible. You have to invest in the right things. But like when I look at it, and we talked about it before, right, you know, we're such a, a market forward kind of thought uh, um, experiment for, for how we do everything, advisory banking and capital, right? So like for us, we, how, how do I, how do I, look at, yes, this company's software is worth a dollar, a million dollars, a hundred million dollars, right? Like, I can't ascribe those metrics to it effectively um, if I don't know what the impact of what they're solving for is. And it's like this, it, it honestly just sometimes feels like, you know, throwing darts at the dartboard in terms of valuations, in terms of, uh, you know, how to set licensing. And, and sometimes it's really just, you know, the level of relationship that like you and I have, or like I have with, with other CISOs where I'll have to just say, look, what is it worth to you to solve this problem? Here's our cost of doing it. And we're going to charge a little bit more than that to make a profit. But like, realistically, if it's not worth solving it, don't do it, you know? So it's tough. So let's switch gears real quick before we finish up, because I want to get your take on this. It's sure. hot and heavy in the news right now. Obviously, the deadline for TikTok being banned in the U.S. is rapidly approaching. China is tightening up their tech export rules, you know, as like the first kind of Chinese, real Chinese company to kind of come out and try to go global. I think probably since you know, maybe Huawei. Right. So 
what, what are you projecting the impact would be uh, with the tightening of these export rules uh, in the investment community? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's obviously these downstream effects. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I, I think I saw an article, what was it, yesterday. Uh, China would rather they shut down TikTok in the U.S. than sell it to, you know, Oracle, Microsoft, Walmart, whatever, right? Um, which is interesting to me because maybe that tells you what they get out of it. You know, TikTok literally is uh, this, you know, this this kind of collection of, of details on every individual and, and it hits us at the heart of uh, really, you know, uh, our, our entire nation from a, and, and really the world, you know, it really hits at the children. I mean, now granted, uh, I am not that enthused that my wife loves TikTok and, you know, because <laughs> honestly, I just, I'm so tired of hearing it in the background. She's luckily kind of pulled back on it. So I haven't heard it for a couple of weeks. So that's good. But like, honestly, it's scary because I'll go places and I'll see, you know, these kids basically setting up to do a TikTok. And it's cool. It makes sense. But like, we got to worry about the privacy situation. We got to worry about how much data is being collected, what is being done with it. And I can, I can, you know, I can sit and, and talk all day long about how Google and Facebook and, and, you know, Microsoft and all these US empires are, are probably evil too. But like, I think it's a slightly different level of evil. When you look at what China does, like they literally at a state level aren't even trying to pretend that there's such a thing as human rights and privacy. And, and they will literally, you know, if, if you create software in China, they'll swoop in with like a military team and steal the software. I, I don't mean like nation state, you know, cat and mouse, black ops behind the scenes. I mean, like, literally, they will take militarized individuals with guns, go to the headquarters, hold it hostage, take the software. Like, so if you think about that kind of, you know, approach and mentality, uh, it's seriously concerning. Um, and I'm not so sure that, you know, the U.S. is a saint, right? Um, but, like, these export controls that, that are going to go in place it's going to change kind of the entire, I'll call it, you know, race uh, associated with technology. Um, I think I'd like to think, and I, and I hope that, you know, because of the U S being a, a freedom based and human rights oriented country, uh, despite whatever leadership might be in place now, and despite whatever kind of rhetoric comes out, um, it's a, a country that was founded on it. It's not founded on control. It was founded on on freedom of expression, freedom of, uh, uh, you know, uh, liberty to, to, to pursue uh, whatever happiness and dreams that you might have. Um, the reality is, I, I think that that is a better place to create entrepreneurship, to create innovation. And I think also those ideals are ultimately going to be embedded in technology and, and puts us ahead in any kind of a race. And I think the controls that will kind of end up, you know, from a, a Chinese perspective, I think it's going to hurt them in the end. Um, but it's, it's for good reason. Uh, you know, there has to be some level of responsibility uh, beyond just what I'll call the, you know, the land grab of information and, and trying to control the populace. Um, but, you know, only time will tell. Look, bro, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, man, thanks for having me. Yeah, buddy. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and to get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. 
That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.